Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. 2 Corinthians 9, verse number 6, it says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And then turn over to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse number 7 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Notice there is no reaping without sowing. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And then over finally in Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Notice Jesus said, give. Notice Paul said, give. Amen? And so uh, we know the Bible teaches giving. And so we've been talking about giving and we've been talking about uh, the different kinds of giving and we've identified that there are five authorized forms of giving identified in the Bible. There's first of all tithes. And, and that's at the head of the list. And then there are general offerings, which means just an, an offering to any uh, thing having to do with the work of God. And then there are offerings that we give especially to missionaries because, you see, they go out to foreign lands uh, as a usual thing and the people there either have not been taught or they're so impoverished they really don't have funds to support, not, not to support uh, in other words, they don't have enough money to actually uh, underwrite the meetings. They give what they have, but very often it's such a meager amount you could never underwrite the ministry that takes place on foreign soil uh, by, the, by the offerings that come in as a usual thing from the people there. So we give to missionaries as they go out to, to minister the word of God to somebody else. So that's the third area. The fourth area is giving to ministers who minister the word to us. And that could be anyone who speaks the word of God to you. It's, it's good to give an offering to them to support them. Whether it's your, uh, someone that you listen on television or, or you follow online or you read their books and that sort of thing uh, and they minister the word of God to you, it's right to give an offering to them, amen? And then finally, giving to the poor. And the Bible supports giving to the poor. So those are the five areas. We identified that, amen. And... Uh, you know, the reason we teach on giving is giving is one of the fundamental disciplines of the Christian life. You know, when, when, when someone gets saved, if, they're, if they genuinely have an encounter with Jesus and are genuinely born again, certain things follow. I mean, if, if, if someone says uh, that they have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and accepted him as Savior, if you never saw any change in their life whatsoever, in other words, uh, they, you ask them, uh, have you been praying? No. 
Have you been going to church? No. Have you read your Bible? No. Have you shared your faith with anybody? No. Do you serve God in any way? No. Do you give? No. Well, you could conclude they probably aren't saved. I said you can conclude without, without judging them. You understand when the Bible says we're not to judge, that means we're not to sit in as their judge. They have one judge, which is God. But you could, you could safely say if there's no fruit at all in a person's life, then there's a good chance they didn't get saved. I know when I, now as a young man, I had been saved as a child, but as a young uh, teenager, in my early teen years, I backslid. And by the time I was in my uh, last few years of high school, I was completely backslidden. And then when, uh, you know, I got married and, you know, moved out from, from home and Angela and I got married, uh, I, was, I lived life just like an unsafe person, just a complete unsafe person like I didn't know God. So when I got back into fellowship with the Lord, it was like getting saved again. And, uh, and, and I mean, I immediately changed. I, I, at the time, I was staying in a, in a motel room a small motel room in Brooksville, Florida, and I was dealing drugs out of my motel room. And uh, whenever, whenever I had this encounter with Jesus, I was watching television, I was watching Billy Graham. For some reason, I turned it on, and I was watching Billy Graham, and it just, you know, it just got a hold of me. Now, I had been reading my Bible. Now, think about how, how cool God is. I had been reading my Bible because I was determined. I had really, for the last two or three years, I had done everything I could to, to rid myself of my religious background. I, I didn't believe, I didn't want to believe, and I was doing everything I could to wash all of that out of me. I wanted nothing to do with it. And so I actually went to the Bible with the intent, because I had been raised in church and I knew a lot of scriptures, I, I knew my way around the Bible. And so I went back to the Bible for the express purpose of finding discrepancies because I had heard and everybody said in my, you know, in my company, the Bible is full of discrepancies, it's inconsistent, you know, it has a lot of error in it and stuff that's scientifically not true and all that. And so I went back purposely to find the discrepancies and the errors and to prove to myself that God's word could not be true. And the funny thing happened along the way. <laughs> I started reading in Matthew and the more I read, I wanted to read Mark. And the more I read that, the more I wanted to read Luke and then John. And, and in my attempt to get away from God, I ran smack into Jesus. Imagine that. Imagine that, right in the word of God. There he was. But, but my point is, it changed my life. I stopped dealing drugs. I stopped using drugs. I stopped drinking. I stopped doing the, the, the things you ought not to do. And I started and I had already started reading the Bible, so I just kept that up. And I mean, I, nobody told me to. I was, I, I hadn't started going to church yet. It was in the first few weeks, you know, and I wasn't used to going to church. And uh, I read my Bible every day. I mean, I read it several times a day. I couldn't get enough. I just read the Bible and read the Bible and read the I was so in love with this new Jesus I'd found. Why didn't anybody show me him when I was a kid, you know? And I was just so taken with the Bible. I just read the Bible. Nobody told me to. It just came automatically. 
It wasn't long after that I started going back to church. Now, I thought in my mind, I'll go back to this Pentecostal, this Southern Pentecostal church that I grew up in. Now, in, in my mind, I'm thinking, my natural mind's thinking, why in the world would you want to go there? You have nothing in common with the people in that church. They're all square. I mean, this is, you know, Southern Pentecostal church. They sang Southern gospel music. They sang those old Pentecostal church hymns. They sang out of the convention book. And I liked rock and roll. And I thought, this is, I don't know why I would do this, but I just, on the inside, I just knew I need to go to church. And even though I didn't want to, and I couldn't in my natural mind think of any reason to go. I mean, I had Jesus, I had my Bible, and I was doing fine. And surely that's going to be the most boring thing. And, you know, I started going to church, and and to my utter amazement, I enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed the music. I actually enjoyed that, that, that crazy kind of music they sang. I, I actually enjoyed all the straight people in the church, all the rednecks. I mean, I actually developed friendships with all these, these people that I thought were the corniest people in the world, and I found out I loved them. I actually had something in common with them after all. We had the same Savior. And it made me love them. It made me want to be there. It made me want to be in their company. So I started going to church. It wasn't long after that, I started giving. And then I started serving in church. All of those things are Christian disciplines that, that just come naturally as a result of being born again. So we teach on giving just like we teach on prayer and just like we teach on the Bible and we teach on right living. We teach on the ministry of helps and serving and teach on the importance of the local church and being involved. We teach on giving. It's one of the most fundamental uh, uh, disciplines of the Christian life is our giving. Amen. Jesus taught giving. Everybody taught giving. Amen. Now we establish these five areas of giving. And we also pointed out that people often make the mistake of saying, well, since we are no longer under the law, but we're under grace, then we, we, are, we do not have an obligation to tithe because tithing was part of the law. We pointed out the fact that tithing was established before the law. It wasn't established by the law. It was established as a principle of faith. Abraham tithed to God as, an, as, a, as a, a principle of faith and the law came later and the law simply regulated the tithing for the children of Israel. But the book of Galatians, and we don't re, won't read there today, but you can go back and listen to other messages if you missed it. But in the book of Galatians chapter three, it talks about the fact that the law came 430 years after the covenant of promise that Abraham entered into with God. And it says that the coming of the law could not annul the promise. Well, if the, if the coming of the law couldn't annul the promise, then the leaving of the law. The, the, the completion or the fulfillment of the law couldn't annul the promise. We're children of the promise, not of the law. And so tithing, we found out, was established before the law. And like I said, it sprang from the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. And since the promise is still in effect, in effect the tithe, which sprang from the promise, 
is still in effect. And, uh, and we pointed out again that tithing is first and foremost a principle of faith in God. Abraham believed God and that's why he tithed, amen? Now, we'll notice this. Look at this uh, real quick over at Romans chapter four. Romans chapter four. Then we know that Abraham tithed not under law, but he tithed by faith as, a, as an act of his faith. In Romans chapter four, it says in verse number, well, let's start in verse number, let's start in verse number 11. He, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. We call Abraham the father of our faith. We know he's not father God, but he's the father of our faith. In other words, he's the one our faith is patterned after. He, he might be the father of all those who believed, who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Notice those who walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. We know that faith has steps. James calls those steps corresponding actions. There are certain steps that faith automatically produces. And he said, you show me your faith without your corresponding actions. I'll show you my faith by my corresponding actions. So our actions are the steps we take in our actual lives, the things we do, will demonstrate the faith that's in our heart. And so again, tithing is one of those steps. It's an act of faith, amen? Now, let's look at, we, we kind of alluded to this, but we want to cover this today. Tithing is also a principle of honoring God. Now, I'm going to go into a little detail later uh, where Abel was concerned because I believe Abel was, in, in the story of Cain and Abel, we have the very first uh, uh, demonstration of this principle of faith. But uh, if we go over to Abraham, we'll notice that in the 14th chapter of, of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 14, to give you a little background on what had happened here, Abraham and his nephew Lot, you know, had left uh, their homeland and gone into the land uh, that the Lord was showing Abraham. And Abraham and Lot uh, split from one another. And Lot chose the well-watered plains of Sodom and Gomorrah and those areas. And, and Abraham took what was left over. Now, in the process of time, there was uh, some kings that came against the kings that uh, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and so forth. And uh, there were four kings that were in uh, 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 alliance who came against the five kings, one of whom was the king of Sodom. And uh, for a while, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and those others in that, in that alliance of five kings, for a while, for 12 years, they actually served the king of uh, King Keto uh, Laomer. And so they served him for 12 years, and then in the 13th year, they rebelled against him. Well, in the 14th year, 
Ketolaomer, it's hard to say, Ketolaomer, went after these kings. And so he went to Sodom and took the city, took all of its belongings, everybody in the city, took Lot and his family, all of his possessions, and indeed all the possessions of, of Sodom, and just took them all away just completely plundered the city, left it empty, took all the people, all the goods. Well, somebody came to Abraham and said, your nephew, Lot, you know, this is what's happened to him. This king has come in and taken him captive and all of his family. Well, the Bible says when Abraham heard that, he gathered together a small private army that he had raised up, 318 men. Think about that, just 318 men, private army. And he went after the king's that had raided Sodom and Gomorrah and the other in the other places. He went after them and f- caught up with them. He and his his eighteen his, his three hundred eighteen men caught up with them, overtook them, and took everything back. Defeated them. Took Lot, his family, his possessions, all the possessions of Sodom. Took it all back. Well, on his way back here, in uh, this is where the story in, in in Genesis fourteen picks up. The last part of the cha- of chapter here. It says then in verse 18 that Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now this Salem eventually came to be called Jerusalem or Jerusalem. That's what Jerusalem derives from is Salem, Jerusalem. So Melchizedek was the king of future Jerusalem. He brought out bread and wine and he was the priest of God most high. I tell you what, if you want to do a study sometime on a a person, it would do you good to study Melchizedek. Just do a study on him. It's a fascinating study. He's a very important person in the redemptive plan of God. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him, that is Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. That word tithe there literally means a tenth. That's what the word tithe means, one tenth. Abraham gave the priest of God most high a tithe of all that he had uh, secured in battle. And uh, the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, the persons, and take the goods for yourself. He's offering him all the, all the booty, everything that had, he had captured. He said, you take it all, just let the people go. And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, let them take their portion. He said, I'm not taking any of the goods for myself because I don't want anybody to say they made Abraham rich. Now, why did he say that? He wanted the world to know that God had made him rich. Abram was a rich man. Turn over, hold your place here and turn over to the 24th chapter, I think. It's 
find it. have this marked up. Yeah, look in verse 35. This is when uh, Abraham had sent his servant to find a bride for Isaac. And he said to uh, her, her, her father, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has, has blessed my master greatly and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. Who did he say had blessed him? The Lord. Lord. See, that's what Abraham, that's the testimony Abraham had, and that's the testimony he was determined to maintain, that the Lord has blessed me. So that's why he told back in chapter 14, that's why he told uh, the king of Sodom, I'm not taking anything from you. Because I don't want anybody saying I contributed to Abraham's success. I want the world to know, everybody to know that my God made me rich. Amen? So what Abraham was doing here by giving a tenth of what he had to Melchizedek is he was honoring the God who was his source. He was saying God alone is my source And in in honor of God who supplies all of my needs, he gave a tenth of what had come in and even though he didn't take the 90%, he took the tenth and offered it up as an offering to the Lord to honor God. He honored God by going through God's priest. Melchizedek was the priest of God most high and so he honored God by showing him uh, this favor. Now go with me over to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. Verse number 9 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Notice he says, honor the Lord with your possessions. You know, God's not against us having possessions. He's not. He's not against his people having possessions. He simply wants us to honor him with our possessions. In other words, the things we have, we ought to have and we ought to use for God's glory. I said the things we have... And the things we use, we ought to use for God's glory, to further God's purpose. That's honoring God with our possessions. And he said, honor him with the first fruits of all your increase. Everything that comes into your hand that's increase, you're supposed to honor God. The way you do that is with your first fruit. That's another expression for the tithe. Give God the tithe and that's how you honor him. See, a lot of people today... Uh, do not tithe, and and some people are just uh, uninformed like I was. Now, when I first started going to church, I I immediately started giving, but I wasn't tithing. And I had been taught tithing as a child, but to me, it looked like an Old Testament thing. And then, so I had the same misunderstanding that a lot of people have today. So I went to the pastor and I said, you know, uh, I see that tithing is, is something that is, 
was in the Old Testament, but I don't see a whole lot about it in the New Testament. It seems to me that today we're under grace and not under law, and so the tithe is no longer in effect. I, I know I, I mentioned this last week, and I think I said the pastor gave me some instruction, you know, and, and helped me, but I, I, actually I got back to, and started thinking about that. I, I really to this day don't know what he said. I'm not sure. I think he said something like, oh, don't worry, it's in there, just study it out. I think that's what he told me. Oh, it's in there. Just, just study it. You'll find it. And I had to study it out for myself. I, I think he knew I wasn't going to believe it unless I've studied it out for myself anyway. And so he said, and if, if the best of my memory, he just he didn't really give me any scriptures or, 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 or anything or any instruction. I think he just said, well, it's in there. You just you study it out. You'll find it. So it made me study. And... Like I said, I was sincere in, in, in uninformed. So today there are a lot of people who, like me, are sincere. They're just not uninformed. But then once someone's informed and then they don't follow suit, then it becomes not an, a, a point of just being uninformed. It, it becomes a, a, a situation where people are just in error. Amen. Because we are to honor God with the first fruits of all of what does that mean? Everything that comes into our hands, we take 10% to give to God and say, God, you are responsible for the 100%. I'm not responsible. I didn't do this. Now, God, you, you may have come from that uh, school of thought that says, well, you know, do it yourself. You know, you're a self-made man. Be a self-made man. Well, there's a, there's a good work ethic and a good uh, uh, sense that we're supposed to provide for ourselves and do for ourselves. But we have to understand God's the one that gives us the ability. I mean, the very breath you just took was because of the grace of God. Any strength you have to work, he gave it to you. Any wisdom you have to produce anything, he gave it to you. Isn't that right? So, so by... By taking the 10% right off the top, the first, that's why it's called first fruits, right off the top of everything that comes in, you give that tenth to God. You're saying, God, I'm not responsible for this. You are. I'm acknowledging that you're my source. You're my supply. You're the one who deserves the credit for everything I have. So we honor God that way. A lot of people today refuse to honor God. When, when, listen, if you can't take, if somebody gives you $100 and you can't take $10 out of that and give to God, what does that say about your, your respect for him? What does that say about your, uh, your acknowledging? Notice it says in verse number uh, six, in all your ways acknowledge him. This is how you acknowledge him in all of your ways. You acknowledge him by saying, listen, everything you, that, just like Jacob said, of everything you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. That's what you do. You honor God. You're acknowledging him in all your ways. Well, praise the Lord. Uh, let's go over to tithing in the New Testament. Now, I made the point to my pastor back then that there wasn't a lot in the New Testament about tithing. And that's true. There are only three references to tithing in the New Testament. And 
two of those are in the Gospels and they're, and they're just two accounts of the same uh, uh, occurrence of what Jesus taught. Go with me to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. And let's look at verse number 23. Matthew 23, 23, 23. And you'll find the same word spoken in Luke uh, chapter 11, verse 42, I think. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you paid tithe of mint and anise and cumin. Those were herbs and so forth. You pay tithe on these small things and have neglected the weightier matter of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Luke, I think he says, the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the other undone. These you ought to have done. That is, you should observe the weightier matters of the law. But then he says, without leaving the others undone. Now, I'll I'll acknowledge to you that Jesus was emphasizing the weightier matters. He went on to say, you, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. So Jesus was emphasizing the weightier matters, which are justice and faith and mercy and the love of God. That's what he was emphasizing. But you have to acknowledge, nonetheless, he endorsed the tithe, didn't he? He said, you should have done these the the weightier matters, and not left the others undone. So even though he's emphasizing one thing, he's still endorsing the other. Can you see that? Can you see that Jesus endorsed tithing? Somebody said, yeah, but Jesus was talking to Jews under the law. Well, let's, like I said, tithing didn't come from the law. Amen, it didn't originate with the law. Go with me over to Hebrews chapter 7. And we'll find out a little bit more about this man named Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 7. Now there's a prophecy in the book of Psalms, the 110th Psalm. And it speaks of, in the fourth verse of of Psalm 110, says you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's a prophecy about the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews here quotes this prophecy several times. Back in the fifth verse, fifth chapter rather, go back to chapter five, verse six. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then coming back over to the, seventh, uh, the sixth chapter, look at the 20th verse. Verse 19 says, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence beyond the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And well, let's just read the seventh chapter here. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abram gave Abraham gave a tenth part of all first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, Salem, meaning king of peace, talking about Melchizedek. Now it says that Melchizedek was without father, without mother, 
without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So we see here that Melchizedek was a type of the Son of God. He was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when it says that he was without father and without mother and without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, some people have have suggested that this was saying that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. He actually appeared in the person of Melchizedek. It's not really what that means. It just means Melchizedek was a, was a natural man. He wasn't a pre-incarnate uh, 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 person of Jesus Christ. He was a natural man. But the, rec- the Bible record doesn't point anything out about his genealogy. It tells us nothing about his father, nothing about his mother, nothing about, uh, like I said, his genealogy, where he came from. There's no record of his birth, no record of his death. That simply means that the, the Bible didn't record those things and so he just appears on the scene and then he's gone. So in that sense, he is, he, the way he shows up in scripture is a type of Christ because we know Christ was without beginning of days nor end of days. Isn't that right? He, he existed eternally. So, so in that sense, Melchizedek was a type of Christ and he was a type of Christ in that he was high priest of the Lord Most High. And it says, now consider how great this man was, Melchizedek, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who have received the priesthood, receive have a commandment rather to receive tithes from the people according to the law that is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he, Melchizedek, whose genealogy is not derived from them, from Levi, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there, when he says here mortal men receive tithes, he's talking about the Jews in his day in the temple. They paid tithes in, 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 in the time that Hebrews was written. He says, here, men who, who uh, mortal men receive tithes, but there he, talking about Melchizedek, he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. By, simply by the fact that there's no record of his death. He appears in scripture as a living man and he stays that way, okay? Even Levi, he goes on to say, who received the tithes under the commandment of Moses, paid tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed... Of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. He's speaking of Jesus. Jesus belonged to the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. Therefore, Jesus could not have been, I'll just add this, Jesus could not have been a priest according to the law because he came from the wrong tribe. All the priests of Israel came from the tribe of Levi. 
Notice it says, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And yet it is far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has not come according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is high priest forever, but he's from this order of Melchizedek, not from the order of of Levi. For on the one hand, there is an annulling, verse 18 says, of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they who have become priests, for they have become priests without an oath, but he who hath an oath, but he, but he with an oath, excuse me, with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He's saying that the Levites, when they received their priesthood, they weren't made priests by an oath from God, but that the Lord Jesus was made a priest by an oath from God. The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become the surety of a better covenant. As also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as these high, those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Hallelujah. The middle of of chapter eight, verse one says, we have such a high priest. So we see here that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek before the law as an act of faith and as an act of honoring the God that the high priest represented. Now we see in the New Testament that Jesus has become a priest and, and indeed high priest by according to the order of Melchizedek, that's the order of his priesthood. So, if Abraham tithed in order, in in honor rather, if Abraham tithed in honor to Melchizedek as the priest of God most high, who was a natural man and who's dead, but who was a type of Christ, why would we not in honor tithe to the antitype? the one from whom the type is cast, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, our high priest, 
whoever lives to make intercession for us at the right hand of God our Father. To disavow this basic honor is to be in error. We tithe today to the Lord Jesus Christ as our high priest. Just like Abraham said, I don't want anybody to get credit for my blessing. I want my credit to go to God alone. And so I'm tithing, I'm taking a tenth of what I've, of what I've received and I'm giving it to the priest, the high priest of God Most High as an honor for everything he's given me. Well, today, would it not seem fitting that since we have, again, a high priest by this same order who's not like the, like the, uh, the type who died, Jesus ever lives. He ever lives. He's entered into this priesthood and he ever lives to make intercession for us. He ever lives to cause us to overcome, to be victorious, to receive. Jesus died to secure the covenant. He was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven to make sure the covenant is good in your life. To make sure that the covenant, the blessing and abundance that God has promised, he's the surety of that covenant. Jesus is the surety of your, in, of your uh, of prosperity. Amen. He's the surety of your abundance. He's the surety of all of your blessings. Then it's right that we tithe to him again to show honor. Amen? Now in closing, let me do this. Go back to uh, <clears throat> go back to Malachi. I'm going to get ahead of myself a little bit, but that's all right. Because this will fit here. In Malachi chapter, Malachi chapter 3 is probably the most well-known passage in the Bible on tithing. And somebody said, but it's in the Old Testament. But listen, you need to, you need to understand all the Old Testament isn't technically the law. A lot of times we refer to the Old Testament as the law or generally we, we think about the law, we think about the Old Testament. But you have to understand, there, there are four divisions of the Old Testament. First of all is the law. The books of the law are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Deuteronomy, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Those are the five books of the law. Then there are books of history. That is Joshua all the way through uh, Ezra, Esther, yeah, all the way through Esther. Those are the books of the history of Israel. And then you have the poetry and wisdom books, which are the books of Job and, and Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Solomon. Those are books of wisdom and books of, 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 uh, of, of poetry, not books of the law. That's why in Proverbs 3, where it says, honor the Lord with uh, your, your substance with your possessions and the first fruits of your increase. That's not a statement from the law. That's a statement from wisdom. The wisdom in the book of Proverbs covers, I mean, it's trans-dispensational. The wisdom that's in Proverbs uh, translates to every day. Isn't that right? Then you have the last category, which are the books of the prophets. And they're divided into the major prophets and the minor prophets. And they're only, they're not... The prophets aren't divided major and minor because some are more important than others. 
It's just that the, the ones that we call the major prophets wrote more. Their books are longer. So that's uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And so those are the major prophets and then the other prophets were minor prophets. So when we're reading from Malachi, don't, don't read this, think you're reading from the law. You're not reading from the law. You're reading from the prophets. Jesus identified that he, he differentiated between the law and the prophets. He said the law and the prophets prophesied until John. So there's a difference between the law and the prophets. In Malachi 3, it says, will a man rob God? Now, that, that very question, is, it's a loaded question. It's, an, it's really intended to be absurd. Will a man rob God? How in the world are you going to hold up God? Will a man? I mean, the very question uh, uh, speaks of an absurdity. Will a man rob God? You know, in one place, God said, all of the beasts of the field are mine. The cattle on a thousand hill, mine. All the birds that fly through the air, mine. And then he said, if I was hungry, which God couldn't be hungry, but he said, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. That's right. He said, I wouldn't tell you if I was hungry. I have everything. I own everything. Everything in the earth is mine. So if I was hungry, I wouldn't be complaining to you. How can you help me? There's nothing we can give to God that'll help him. Okay? But he said, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, but you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Now, I want to. Um, there's one way of looking at this. This is the normal way we look at it. I don't, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but the people had robbed God of tithes and offerings. That's one way to look at it. But another way to look at it is it wasn't their tithes and offerings. That's not what they robbed God of. Notice it doesn't say, of what have we robbed you? Notice it doesn't say, of what have we robbed you? It says, in what way have we robbed you? And I went and looked and all, almost, almost every other translation translates it this way. In what way, or many of them say, how have we robbed you? Again, not of what have we robbed you, but how did we rob you? He said, you have robbed me in tithes and offerings by not bringing tithes and offerings. Let me just suggest, now I understand the, 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 the more common uh, uh, interpretation of this is accurate. I'm not saying there's only one way to look at it, but there's more than one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is, it's not the tithes and the offering themselves. God doesn't need our money. So, yes, he does. He, he, you know, the gospel can't be carried out without me. Well, that's true, but God doesn't really have to have us to produce it. I remember a few years ago, Oral Roberts. Now, he was a very controversial minister, and whatever you might think of him is beside the point. But he had an $8 million debt that he had no way of, of meeting. And, and he said, I, I don't, I'm not going to, 
uh, endorse what he said. I'm not going to make a position. I'm not taking a position on it. But he said that Jesus appeared to him and told him if he didn't raise that $8 million, he was going to take him home. So all of, all of the secular media picked it up and they said, you know, God's an extortionist. You know, he's holding Oral Roberts' ransom, you know. For... I don't know about all that. I don't know what Jesus said to him. I mean, that's not my point. But he had an $8 million debt. God sent a sinner man, multimillionaire, gave him $8 million. He did not believe in the Lord or in Oral Roberts. In fact, this millionaire said, I think Oral Roberts has a mental price. Said, I think he's crazy. Here's $8 million. <laughs> now, who's crazy? <laughs> Oral Roberts or the guy that gave him $8 million? My point is, God can get money from anywhere to finance the gospel. So in, in, in one sense, yes, God needs us, but in another sense, not really. He can get money from anywhere. He can cause millionaires who don't even believe in him to give money. It's not his ordinary way of doing it, but I'm saying he can do it. I present to you that it's not, the, the robbing of God is not so much in the money, it's in the honor. He, they said, how, in what way have we robbed you? Not of what we have robbed you, but how did we rob you? You robbed me, he said, by not giving tithes and offerings. But I believe there's another way of looking at it, and that is that they robbed him of the honor that was due to him. How? By not giving tithes and offerings. Well, amen. It's one way to look. I'm not saying it's the only way to look at it, but... It'll work. Fits, doesn't it? It fits, the, it fits the, the, the honoring God concept. Amen? Praise the Lord. Well, praise God. I tell you what, in this, we'll close with this. I said we would. He went on to say, you're cursed with a curse for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Now again, this isn't a book of the law. This is a book of the prophets. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. Think about what God said to the children of Israel. He said, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this. He said, try me. Just try me. Put me to the test. That's what he's saying. He said, bring the tithe and just try it. Another translation says, prove me out. Bring the tithe and prove me out, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of He said, just try it and see if I won't bless you. I don't know how in the world anybody walks away from an offer like that. 
I mean, if, if any rich person you knew in this, in this world today came to you and gave you an offer and said, now, you do this and see if I want pour my riches into your life. Try it and see. And it's $10 on the, $10 on the hundred, a dollar out of 10, that's all I have to do. Now, if it was 90, I might take pause. But 10%, that's worth trying. I said, that's worth trying. I mean, that's foolish. If somebody who has the means and you know they're reputable, you know they're honorable, you know they're not a liar and they've always proven themselves to be a liar. If they say to you, do this, give me a dollar out of 10 and watch what I'll, you, and I'll prove it to you. You'd be, you'd be, you'd be something be wrong with you if you wouldn't take that person up on that. Isn't that right? You would do it. Don't tell me. Don't sit out there and say, well, I wouldn't. I'd be smarter. I wouldn't. No, you would take them up on it. I guarantee you, most everybody in this room have taken chances a whole lot worse than that. We've fallen for some things. Come on now. We've made some investments that we thought were really going to work out and they weren't nearly as sure as that. Don't tell me you wouldn't take God up on this. Amen. That's what he's offering us. What is he offering us? He's offering us financial partnership. That's really what that is. He's he's offering us to enter into a contractual relationship with him. If we'll bring the tithes in the storehouse, he said, you put me to the test and watch what I will do. See if I won't open the windows of heaven. That's a contract. And, And that's partnership with God. Oh, glory to God. I tell you what, God has proven to be my best financial partner all through my years. God has proven himself a trustworthy, reliable financial partner. He has has protected me, protected the source of my income, protected me when other people were having all kinds of crazy things happening. God has secured me over and over and I saw it back when I first started tithing. I mean, when I first started tithing, I didn't know very much, but I had studied enough to see that Jesus was a type of, when I saw that Jesus was a, that Melchizedek was a type of Jesus and that Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek and Abraham in honor gave to him, I saw in honor, I must tithe to my high priest. That's, that's about all I saw. When I saw that, I started putting that into practice. I mean, it wasn't long after that. I mean, God proved himself. We had a layoff on the job where I was working, on the company I was working for. And they, we, we were a, a unionized company. So everything had to be done according to strict union regula- regulations. And they laid off strictly on the basis of seniority. I mean, you know, they started at the, at the low man on the totem pole and started laying off until they had met their quota and it wasn't based on anything. There was no merit involved. It was strictly seniority. You know, they laid off up and around me and over me and I kept my job. And then I found out that there was, nobody else knew it. And the, and nobody in the company knew it. I didn't know it. Found out there was a little clause that the that management had had inserted into the labor contract that said they could select a, a 10% out of any seniority group to keep 
if they felt it was necessary for the company. They didn't keep 10%. They kept me. I think, no, I think there was one other guy. Yeah, they kept me and one other guy. No, it was far less than 10%. Kept me and one other, laid off bunches of people. God protected the source of my income. And I knew right then, see, if I'm not open for you, the windows of heaven, I'll protect the source of your income. Your vine will not uh, uh, cast its, its, its fruit, so forth. God, I tell you what, God has protected me over and over and over. Many of you can testify of the same thing. When th- storms of life come, you stand on the fact that God promised you he would protect you. And I tell you what, he's done it over and over and over again. Tithing is, is a contract. It'll put you in partnership with God. But more importantly than that, it shows that you honor him. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.